Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 3rd of June 2019 and this is episode 116. On today's programme, Dr Mario Draper, a lecturer in modern British and European history from the University of Kent, discusses the mutiny of the Connaught Rangers in India in 1920. This talk was given as part of the Antrim and Down Branches Spring Conference on the Consequences of War, held on the 9th of May 2019. Right, OK, thank you very much uh, for inviting me. Um, and... Uh, yeah, my paper today, thankfully for you, is not to do with Belgium. I'm sure you're all delighted. Um, but instead, a uh, another pet project, um, which came out of my undergraduate dissertation. In fact, uh, looking back on it, barely a footnote uh, in the, the dissertation. Um, but then something that stuck with me and, and I've pursued uh, since then. Now, just, uh, I, I presume most people have heard of the Connaught Rangers Mutiny, uh, but I'm not entirely sure. So, um, show of hands, who has heard of the Connaught Rangers Mutiny? Yeah, okay, so it's fairly well, fairly well established, fairly well known. Um, now, it's a really interesting uh, case uh, study, uh, not just in terms of the uh, demobilisation of the British Army and the legacy of the First World War uh, in the immediate uh, sort of melting away of the British Army, to use uh, Will's term, um, but also in the remobilisation of the army, because obviously, you know, the British Army returns to real soldiering. And it's got an empire uh, to police, uh, and therefore the army has to think about what it's going to look like in the future. Um, and this kind of ties all of that stuff together. So, on the 5th of July 1920, the Times published uh, an article entitled Tampering with the Army, Sinn Féin in India. And it related a course of events which occurred between the 28th uh, of June and the 1st of July 1920 in uh, the 1st Battalion of the Connaught Rangers stationed in the Punjab in India. Uh, specifically, the 300 or so men who grounded arms in uh, basically being in sympathy with Ireland. So as the headline suggests, as the reasoning that the soldiers gave for grounding arms suggests, this was a heavily politicised uh, move by these 300 or so men, 61 of which were later segregated from the mass and tried by courts martial as uh, ringleaders in inciting this mutiny. Of these, 14 received death sentences, 13 were then commuted, and only one that of James Joseph Daly of Tyrrells Pass, County Westmeath, uh, was executed on the 2nd of November 1920 for his part in leading a group of about 70 or 80 men uh, in an attack on the magazine in the outposter at Solon. So the mutiny occurs in two separate places uh, to try and retrieve weapons uh, in order to you know, further their cause. Uh, this attack on the magazine had caused uh, two deaths and left another soldier severely injured. Um, Daly was shot on the 2nd of November 1920 um, and later went down as a nationalist martyr 
for his role. It all kind of gets tied up in this narrative um, of nationalist martyrdom uh, as the, the mutiny kind of mutates from what it actually was uh, into something completely different. And depending on how much time I give myself, uh, I will go into that in greater detail. So here is the man himself, James Daly, uh, a young man, um, age 20, uh, who dared to strike at the heart of the British Empire, the British establishment, by leading this mutiny. A man who apparently had a conflicted identity of being an Irishman in a British uniform. Um, but a man whose uh, loyalty uh, to Irish nationalism was in absolutely no doubt whatsoever. Um, also, the story continues to be told by some. So let's just have a, a quick look at uh, this newspaper article. Um, the Independent, uh, which was published on the 9th of January uh, 1999, Fergal Keane um, wrote a sort of lengthy piece, piece detailing the uh, events of the mutiny in India. Um, but I've just picked out a, a small quote, uh, and he says, um, that is how armies work. Soldiers are trained to react instinctively to the shouted command. When mutinies happen, they are, for the most part, the result of soldiers' anger, poor leadership, bad conditions, and heavy losses. But what happened with Private Daly was different. His choice, and that of the men who supported him, went to the core of his identity. An Irishman in a British uniform, he was still a British citizen. In legal terms, he owed his loyalty to the king. But, and this is where the emotive bit comes out, doesn't it? But his heart told him otherwise. It's a choice few soldiers ever have to make. Right, so again, it's, it's starting to, to kind of build this, this image of the mutiny as being a, a very politically inspired event. And this has been taken up in the historiography. Um, you know, particularly uh, in the, the 60s uh, and the 70s, uh, T.P. Killfeather uh, and uh, Sam Pollock wrote uh, some very emotive uh, accounts of the mutiny and, and wrapped it up, like I say, in this nationalist uh, veneer, stating very clearly uh, that uh, the mutiny was inspired by events back in Ireland and that undoubtedly kind of Sinn Féinism was the root cause. Now, I'm not disputing that politics played a part in the breakdown of discipline. I mean, these men who laid down their weapons uh, you know, at the start of the mutiny did so by openly stating that they were in sympathy with Ireland. But I don't think it is the primary cause for the breakdown in discipline. It certainly wasn't a premeditated uh, Sinn Féin cell kind of operating uh, in the British Army to, to strike uh, a blow from within and, and you know, bring the whole British Empire uh, to its needs. That certainly wasn't the case, although it has been uh, you know, described as such. Instead, I think we need to look at uh, military reasons, predominantly, not political ones, to explain what happened. Uh, firstly, uh, what I would term institutional failings in the British Army post-war, uh, and related uh, poor officer-man relations. Um, all the evidence suggests this, in, in my opinion, uh, whether you look at the military records, if you kind of 
drill down into the courts martial proceedings, and particularly uh, in the aftermath uh, of the events, if you start to unpack the rather conflicting uh, and, and rather changeable narratives uh, of the survivors of the mutiny, the Connaught Rangers, uh, you know, veterans uh, of the mutiny, who change their story as they kind of go along trying to, to reap the rewards and benefits uh, from the Irish state uh, after, after the event. Uh, and it very clearly becomes evident, uh, to me at least, that we are talking about a military breakdown, not a political uh, mutiny. So just to give you uh, an idea of uh, where we are, so um, we are in uh, the Punjab in India. Um, the battalion um, was stationed primarily at Wellington, uh, Wellington Barracks at Jullundur um, with a couple of detachments uh, that were then sent off into the similar hills uh, in Solon uh, and a little further north at Juto uh, as well. Now, the mutiny began on the 28th of June at Jullundur. Okay, initially when uh, five men, uh, later four, but five men, uh, Joseph Hawes, Christopher Sweeney, Patrick Gogarty, Stephen Lally, and William Daly, who was James Daly's brother, presented themselves to Lance Corporal John Flannery, like I say, stating that they could no longer soldier for the British Army uh, because they were in sympathy with Ireland. Now, at this stage, uh, you know, Flannery tried to dissuade the men from carrying uh, you know, this out. You know, the consequences of mutiny are really severe. Don't do it, don't do it. Um, which is interesting because he then later rebrands himself as kind of like the key mutineer. It was at this point that he took command of the mutiny, and he would later kind of paint himself as the hero uh, of, of the events. Uh, but initially, he tries to dissuade them, uh, convinces William Daly, ironically, uh, to not participate. Uh, but the other four present themselves to the guardroom um, and they get locked up. Uh, and very quickly, things escalate. And uh, depending on which account you kind of read, 200 or so, uh, perhaps a few more men join in uh, the mutiny in sympathy. I mean, it's peaceful, it's not violent, um, but they definitely have uh, things on their minds that they, they want to uh, express to their officers. Um, Obviously, a mutiny uh, has potential ramifications, um, particularly uh, in India. Uh, we're not too far away from Amritsar, uh, not too far removed from uh, the massacre. So there's a whole kind of subplot uh, brewing there. Very quickly, uh, the mutineers are, uh, or the barracks is relieved by uh, forces. The mutineers marched out to a camp. Um, the ringleaders are separated from, from the masses, uh, and it's all kind of done and dusted at Jullundur. Now, interestingly, uh, they send emissaries out to the hill stations in the similar hills to try and get uh, A and C companies uh, involved in the mutiny. Uh, a company at Juktor stays uh, completely loyal, um, but C company, where Daly is at Solon, uh, get wind of what's happening at Jullundur and join in uh, the fray uh, from the 30th of June. Now, here's where I think the, the first kind of clue to the uh, military and not political uh, nature of the mutiny is. Uh, it's painted that, that Daly is uh, you know, the martyr, the hero uh, of this narrative, the man who uh, very clearly had Sinn Féin sympathies and was the leader of everything. He didn't find out about it until two days after the mutiny had begun at Jullundur, right? He only sprang into action uh, on the 30th of June. Uh, so automatically in my head, I'm starting to question really uh, how much this is being politically inspired. 
Anyway, things at Solon uh, go a little bit wrong. Like I say, they agree to kind of uh, have a, a peaceful mutiny as such. The weapons are taken away from them, stored in the, the magazine at Solon, which is then guarded by uh, elements of the company that remain loyal. Daly and his men decide, actually, that's probably not a great idea. Maybe they're going to be uh, shot um, by uh, the loyal elements uh, because there are, uh, there are rumours going around that uh, those at Jullandur had been massacred, so maybe they're going to uh, meet the same fate. So they try and storm the, the magazine. Like I say, it ends up in two men being killed, another seriously wounded. At this stage, Daly allegedly stands up in the middle of the attack and declares, I am James Joseph Daly of Tyrrell's Pass, County Westmeath, and you know, I'm the leader of the mutiny. You know, very clearly uh, identifies himself as the leader. But he's only the leader of the Solon bit. Now, there are many kind of reasons uh, that have been put forth uh, subsequently, not just the political reasons for why the mutiny actually occurred. So Anthony Babington, um, who was the first uh, of a few uh, Irish uh, historians um, who uh, went into further detail um, in, into the archives to work out exactly what had gone on here, to try and dispel or at least to uh, qualify the political narrative that was being spoken of. And his assessment, uh, which kind of marries with the uh, regimental history, um, is that these were green recruits um, who were not accustomed to uh, the trials of military life, particularly in the searing heat uh, of the Indian summer. And therefore, this is why you know, discipline broke down. And he proves this uh, by saying that out of 206 men uh, who joined the regiment in the last couple of drafts, 172 of those were identified as taking part in the mutiny. But just because they were new to the battalion in India doesn't mean that they were green recruits lacking any experience. So if you look uh, uh, at the 61 ringleaders uh, of the mutiny and, and break it down, break their military experience down, actually you have a very experienced core of the mutiny there. So 30 had spent five years or more in the army. Six uh, had spent more than four years. Eight had spent more than three years. Three had spent more than two years. Four had spent over a year and 10 for an unspecified period of time. Couldn't uh, quite work it out. But the majority had wartime experience. Right? We're talking about June 1920. These are not you know, completely green recruits. In fact, J.W.C. Francis, 19th Hussars, and the last surviving witness of the court's martial proceedings, uh, actually agreed that, um, that inexperience uh, probably wasn't the key factor. His view was that beyond the mitigating circumstances that could have affected any unit, such as the hot weather, um, that the reasons for the mutiny were, and in no particular order, unrest in Ireland, letters from home, very poor discipline, and uh, indeed of the entirely unintelligent sort, and extremely bad relations between officers and their men. Now, this is where I come in. I, I really think that it's uh, very much uh, the last couple uh, of those points. Officer-man relations in the Connaught Rangers by 1920 uh, had suffered from a unique uh, series of events that had occurred in the First World War. Right? There's a legacy of the First World War that I feel plays a significant role in the breakdown of discipline. Um, because there was a, a rather bizarre division of experience um, between the regular battalions 
and the service battalions during the war. So the regular battalions, apart from a very brief uh, period uh, of fighting in 1914 uh, on the Western Front, uh, actually spent the major majority of the war in the less intense uh, theatre in Mesopotamia. Um, whereas by contrast, the 5th and the 6th battalions uh, fought predominantly uh, at Gallipoli uh, and key engagements on the Western Front of the Somme uh, and what not. Which meant that the regular pre-war officer cadre spent the majority of the war not in the most intense uh, of theatres, but actually were stationed out in Mesopotamia. And these are the officers that then return to the regiment and or stay with the regiment after the war, and of the officers that we see in India in 1920. By contrast, the rank and file are made up of men from across the battalions during the First World War, the Connaught Rangers, and from other units as well, um, who potentially had a very different expectation of officer-man relations as a result of their combat experience, um, particularly in the service <coughs> battalion. So if you uh, read your David Englanders uh, and the like, his opinion is that uh, the concept of officer-man relations changed significantly over the course of the war, as the army mutated from a strictly professional regular force into a mass citizen army. That although an officer's authority was, in theory, non-negotiable, actually, right, men were very keen judges of officer performance and expected uh, a certain degree of uh, paternalism, of, of being looked after, uh, of... Uh, being you know, cared for, not just out of the front line, but in the front line, you know, if officers were you know, too reckless, uh, it's not unheard of that they might have got a bullet in the back themselves, right? But that there is a, a shifting dynamic there that meant that the balance of power wasn't entirely top down. It wasn't carrot and stick necessarily, that it was much more malleable than that. So you've got a situation in 1920 where you've got officers who are pre-war regular officers who didn't serve in the most intense theatres, commanding a lot of men with war experience who may have served under very different types of, of officers, uh, which means that that relationship already, there, there is friction. Besides that, there is also an imbalance, uh, right? There's a top-heavy composition um, in the Connaught Rangers by 1920, and this is, again, a legacy of the First World War. So, after demobilisation, there is an absolute, um, what's the, the phrase that, that someone used, I can't remember, Keith Jeffrey, uh, I think used, an embarrassing surplus um, of officers in the British Army. Uh, the, those you know, temporary commissions obviously go, but there, there's still a huge number of, of officers remaining uh, who want to continue on their service in the British Army, uh, many of which have received uh, huge steps in promotion as a result of the war. And the Connaught Rangers, uh, end up in a situation whereby they have uh, a very large number, comparatively, of majors in the regiment and comparatively few captains compared to normal regiments. And if you uh, listen to the uh, interview with um, FWS Francis, uh, who was the adjutant um, at the end of the war, uh, which is on the Imperial War Museum Sound Archive, yeah, his view very much is that this top-heavy imbalance caused some of the major issues with uh, the breakdown of discipline because majors, as he says, quite a senior rank and they didn't like 
necessarily to spend too much time or get to know their men too closely. That This was the job of the more junior officers, of the lieutenants, even of the captains. And so the fact that you had a disproportionate number of majors and comparatively few captains in the battalion, again, created a dislocation between officers and their men. So, I mean, just to put it into, into context, so whereas a normal regiment might have three or four majors, um, you know, by the time going on, uh, I looked at 25 different uh, battalions on, on foreign service in June 1920, and they average out at somewhere between three and four majors that they'd have. The Connaught Rangers, right, had five, and, uh, had five at the time, but six on the books. Uh, not entirely sure if all six were there. By contrast, the number of captains in an average battalion was six. Connaught Rangers only had three. So there's your statistical evidence for it. But this is then backed up by what others said of the regiment, their experience of coming into contact with the Connaught Rangers. So here is uh, Brigadier C.I. Gerard, 51st Sikh Regiment, um, who noted the very poor impression given off by the Connaught Rangers officers. And he wrote, we played a lot of football against the Rangers but their officers were never present and their teams were run by NCOs. We gained the impression that the officers were not in close touch with their men. More worrying was Gerard's impression that senior and junior officers themselves didn't see eye to eye. Uh, that the subalterns appeared to have, quote, a chip, on their, a chip on their shoulder and much to say against their colonel and their adjutant, which was not good uh, to uh, an outsider like himself to see. So it revealed potentially these structural issues uh, in the post-war British Army that then played out in a, in a real-life scenario to cause some kind of breakdown in discipline. It is not a unified regiment that is, is you know, drawing from the, the regimental uh, system, the esprit de corps that is meant to keep the whole show on the road. And it's potentially dangerous because what ha if this could happen in the Connaught Rangers, if there are structural problems in the British Army, it foreseeably could happen in other units as well, which is part of the reason why the British authorities are quite happy to uh, claim that it was a Sinn Féin uh, cell in the British Army, an isolated incident, they've dealt with it politically, so they're quite happy to go along with this political narrative at the start. It's much more troublesome to suggest that they haven't really worked out how to, how to deal with this restructure of the British Army. Now, apart from the structural issues, uh, there's also a suggestion that the Connaught Rangers just simply suffered from poor officers altogether, um, whose uh, inexperience, uh, whose um, you know, lack of intelligence in, in some uh, respects, particularly if you look at how they deal with the, with the mutiny, comes to the fore under the, the strains and stresses of service in India and also the mutiny itself. Uh, so the adjutant uh, at the time, the one who succeeded uh, Jourdain, LWL leader, was said to be sly and untrustworthy. He was neither loved nor trusted by anyone. And it said that when the 200 men appeared outside the officers' mess at Jullendor to uh, express their concerns about uh, continued soldiering for the British Army um, to their colonel, Colonel Deacon, one of the privates targeted leader for abuse, claiming that he would knock his block off uh, for having given, given him several months' punishment uh, for what he thought was a, an insignificant offence. Deacon himself was described as a great bully who ticked off senior officers in front of the juniors and, what was worse, officers in front of the men. 
Captain Leslie Badham at Solan, at Solan sorry, was equally disliked, uh, particularly when he cancelled uh, the leave that the men were due in favour of a musketry course um, the day before the mutiny. Uh, you know, coincidence, I think not. Um, you know, in the searing heat of India, uh, possibly the last thing uh, you want to do is, uh, you know, further drill or whatever it is. Um, but again, there's this is a gap, I think, in understanding between, you know, what the men uh, are feeling, what they're thinking, what they want, and what the officers feel that they should be doing. You know, it's very difficult, isn't it, in the sort of isolated hill station in India to know how best to keep the men occupied. If you have men who are unoccupied, they can start thinking about things, and that is potentially dangerous as well. So there's a sense, almost, that the officers are overworking the men for want of anything better to do. <coughs> um, and in total, like, for me, this just feels like a very toxic atmosphere. Um, stemming from primarily military reasons, not from politics. None of this is politically motivated. Um, to give a further example uh, of uh, potentially how bad uh, the officers were, uh, how ill-suited they were to their, their roles, uh, we need look uh, as far as Major Payne, who, quote, was rarely seen sober past the hour of six o'clock. Um, <laughs> Or, you know, Majors Nolan Farrell, Lloyd and Truel, who were described respectively as having no imagination, not a particularly distinguished officer, and one of those Majors who never really seems to get beyond that. Right? These are hardly ringing endorsements of the men in command. And in fact, you know, you look at, at how the, the mutinies unfold. Deacon is relieved of his command very quickly for his mishandling of the situation. Uh, Alexander at Solon, right, is also, uh, you know, reprimanded uh, very severely um, for having dithered and not listened to his subordinates, even though his subordinates, the junior officers, kind of get the rap officially because, you know, that's what they're there for. Um, but, you know, the, the handling of the situation is not great by anyone, particularly uh, that top-heavy balance of majors. So, in conclusion as to why the mutinies happened, for me, it's a combination of uh, outright incompetence um, on the part of many of the officers involved, uh, an, out, uh, an unwavering adherence to outdated uh, methods um, of command and, and of, of discipline, which no longer fit uh, the post-war British Army, which had been shaped by four years of war. And that, again, it's those structural issues that meant that these officers who, for the most part, had spent uh, the war in Mesopotamia with the 1st Battalion uh, and not really come to terms with this shifting dynamic of officer-man relations weren't well equipped for. Um, having said that, uh, very clearly, there is a political dimension to it in as much as the soldiers were aware of some of the things that were going on in Ireland. Uh, newspapers potentially could have been censored uh, slightly more. Um, the letters from home, again, might have uh, brought back some news of atrocities uh, that were uh, occurring. But that, again, in the searing heat of India, men might have been more predisposed to take these uh, and, and run with these ideas and kind of blow them out of uh, proportion. Um, so there's, there's, it's very difficult to work out exactly what news uh, had reached them, but you know, later claims that, that Daly had been shouting, up Balbriggan, up Balbriggan, um, before he left uh, the UK uh, for, for India. Um, you know, this was the reason why he mutinied, is completely unfounded, because uh, you know, the Balbriggan incident that they're referring to happened in September uh, 1920, and you know, the mutiny happened in June. So there's a whole conflation 
of uh, you know, what was happening back in Ireland and the reasons for the mutiny. So very clearly, from my perspective, it is not a premeditated kind of Sinn Féin attack uh, on um, you know, British rule in India, um, the British army uh, as a whole. Um, you know, the, the, the whole narrative kind of gets uh, mixed up with what happens after the event right? and, the, and the revolution um, and, and everything thereafter. That You start seeing uh, imagery of... Uh, and, and, and all sorts of, of bits of the narrative being changed to fit a nationalist narrative afterwards. You know, the fact that there's a, uh, a trickle or the fact that they're wearing kind of rosettes singing Sinn Féin uh, rebel songs, that all this kind of stuff only seems to really come to the fore in the 1920s, 1930s. Um, you know, well after the, the, the fact. If you look at the, uh, the courts martial proceedings, um, you know, you don't get quite as much of a sense that this is uh, a political mutiny whatsoever. So fundamentally, structural issues in the post-war British Army, um, which saw a top-heavy regiment uh, in terms of its officers, go to India without the adequate uh, experience or knowledge about how officer-man relations had evolved during the war, caused the breakdown, and there you have it, led to uh, 61 mutineers being tried by courts martial, one of them being shot. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.